Welcome back to a Mark's Madness collaboration. Oh, yeah. oh, we are back. All everyone's back. The whole gang's all here. We're do- the eagle like cries in the background. <laughs> <laughs> okay, lightning, gonna, lightning like, crashes. It's really, it looks really cool. We're putting it on a t-shirt. <laughs> we're putting it. We're putting it immediately on an airbrush side of a van. It is happening. It is <laughs> happening. There's going to be a Mark's Madness mobile uh, <laughs> studio. <laughs> That's that's what we're starting the Patreon for. We're not starting the Patreon, but that would be what we'd start the Patreon for. <laughs> is the van that me and Mark's me and David is. are. We're just doing the podcast in different parts of Missouri, uh, just just slightly outside yeah. of where we normally do just it. Touring around, yeah. It. Just we're not. We can't go too far, <laughs> but you know, well, it becomes like a sideshow. So you just set up on like you know the side of the highway, and you yeah. like put up some banners, and you just start <laughs> podcasting on the well, side of the road. Everybody well, will love it. It's gonna be. It's gonna catch on. Yeah, we'll stop by a Lambert's and see if they'll step out the door and throw <laughs> rolls at us. What's a Lam- is Lambert's the place where they? Oh yeah, the yeah, yeah. They-, they like throw the bread. Okay. Yeah. I just saw that. Like literally before getting on this, I saw a TikTok or something yeah. of it. Yeah, a reel. A- I don't know. One of those things. There's a whole chain, and they're probably like two to three per state, but they're somehow a tourist attraction as a chain. There, it's a goofy place. Well, it's like that one place, uh, Dick's or Dick's whatever, Last Resort. Yes. Yeah, they just opened one up one in. Uh, Oh, I don't even know. Somewhere in Detroit. I'm not I've, real sure. I've never been there, but I, I used to – we went on a vacation to Chicago when I was a kid because my dad would have to travel up there for work a lot, and there was a place called Ed DeBevix that was like Yeah, that. that's the Ed one I've been to. Huh. I, I couldn't remember the name of it, but I knew there was one in Chicago. Uh, yeah. See, I, I figured it was a Chicago thing, but I, <laughs> I, I, I didn't know there was a whole other oh, thing. Yeah. Oh, there, they've got to have their own version. <laughs> Competing <laughs> – we had our own restaurant. It was original. <laughs> All right. It's like the McDonald's Burger King story of assholes. Well, that was a long, cold open to say this is Mark's Madness Pod. Uh, we read books, and we are doing this in collaboration with Bands of Turtle Island and our good friend Shigmani 2. Thank you, Shigmani 2. Uh, hey. hey. And this week, we are going to be doing uh, something we've done a couple different times during this uh, this particular uh, collaboration, but we're going to do a bit of a detour to help uh, reinforce what the, the you know, I, I think it's important to help reinforce what we're doing with this work, but it's also just a good preface to any kind of, of communist talk or, or organization or, or discussion is is hitting on some of the as as we've said before we got to hit the classics every now and again and uh we're gonna hit one of the shorter classics today in principles of communism by everyone's favorite beard frederick engels the greatest beard. it was a good beard i stand by it it's It's a a solid solid beard. beard uh I can't think of many there, better I mean, beards. They only keep the descending head picture just to show off Angle's beards in comparison <laughs> with the other facial hair. Oh, man. Move, uh, this is a work published in 1847. We have done a whole kit and caboodle uh, of episodes on the 1848 revolutions that kicked off right after this. Um, that was back. Mm-hmm. David, correct me if I'm wrong. Was that, was that uh, State Revolution? Uh, we probably did that in State and Revolution. Okay, yeah. I think we, yeah, I think we did that in um, State and Revolution. Because I don't, I don't think we did as big of a preface. We were just starting off with with Capital, so I think we did that in State and Revolution because that was the whole. We did that in World War One. So that's right. That's right. You we may have done eighteen forty eight during imperialism. Then I don't know. It may have been. Oh yeah. It may have been. I don't, oh no, those were definitely flipped. We, we definitely we did, did World, World War One for imperialism. And, and anyway, 
old. It's in the it's annals. In the, it's it's in, in the, the bonus episodes. Go look at the bonus content and whatever stream service you get this in. Uh, but this was published in 1847. Uh, it was originally published in 1914 in uh, Bernstein, Edward Bernstein's social democratic paper, Vorwarts. Uh, wild that it sat on the shelves for that long and then popped up three years before uh, shit started kicking off uh, in the East. But there, there you are. Uh, well, and, well, and a also, big reason. Yeah, oh. go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I was think you're going to say a big reason is that, uh, you know, it's basically the framework for what becomes the manifesto. And altogether, you know, like the manifesto, um, as, you know, it's, it's not really like a, it's not a Bible. I don't know. Like Jordan it's, it's Peterson. A it's a pamphlet. Yeah, it's a pamphlet. To fire people up. Yep. And and to explain some terms, mm-hmm. you know, like, and that's really why we wanted to go over this is to um, talk about like um, foundational terminology of uh, class character uh, in, uh, you know, just beginning industrial society, basically. I mean, like, what late stage capitalism becomes, no one would have guessed. No. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. This there's there's talks about like the people of the factories and stuff, and you're like, we work for Uber. What the fuck? You, you know, it's it. Yeah, no, it's it's a little dated, but it has some some very foundational principles that we need to to visit and see process wise. And the way I was going to go with that, it not being published till uh, Bernstein got it, is is that kind of makes sense because uh, Bernstein was kind of known. Um, <laughs> for manipulating and revising Marx and being a big revisionist. And so if you go back one step to the foundational stuff, you can do one of two things. You can have something that gives you the thinking process and gives you context and helps you build how to break this stuff down better and better understand the newer works. Or you can go, hey, I have something stripped down and I can manipulate it. And guess what one Bernstein did? Oh, Bernstein. And so one of the original dunk Patriotic boys. socialists... <laughs> are doing that currently, right? Mm-hmm. We have this reactionary sect of, you know, quote-unquote communists that are they're just doing the national socialist stick, you know, shtick. But, like, a, you know, maybe there's one or two of them that are, you know, honest Marxist-Leninists that are just reactionary because fucking America. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the idea is that we can analyze this and we can start to break down our own conditions so we can basically um, better convey and analyze these things to people in less academic jargon or less piecemealed um, theoretical works because a lot of what we're working with is we have a lot of great, you know, like activists and stuff that have a lot of knowledge, but we don't have a concise way these things are being conveyed, really. Uh, Which is kind of sucks. Like, we have older works that really touch on today's works, right? And we have some bangers like The Red Deal that are, you know, beginning to touch on this. But, like, this is more of a platform to adopt rather than a party to fall behind, right? You know, like, this is more about educating the entire left to see, you know, if we can all get on the same page on one topic. Not about establishing some, um, uh, what, like, commandist position, you know, like, um, we're trying to encourage a better dialogue that's well, better informed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this, uh, this work is not long. It will be completed in one episode. I am committing to that right now. (laughs) 
Speaking of the, the Jordan Peterson uh, Bible theory, this is like the 25 commandments of Kavya, but it's not. It's not. Uh, <laughs> yes, this is, uh, th- it is. But it is like, it's 25 It's 25 points, points and we say that like, oh, we can tackle this, but we've also uh, been known to only read a page sometimes. So without further ado, <laughs> let us get into principles of communism. What? What is communism? Communism is the doctrine of the conditions of the liberation of the proletariat. I like this. Yeah. I'm a fan of this. It's easy. easy <laughs> this stuff. is well. They, you guys should really read Red Nation Rising, Border Town Violence in America, because it's a lot more like this. this. Is nice. Uh, two. What is the proletariat? Well, that's helpful to know now that I I've learned section one. What do you got for me, Angles? The proletariat is that class in society which lives entirely from the sale of its labor and does not draw profit from any kind of capital, whose weal and woe, whose life and death, whose sole existence depends on the demand for labor, hence on the changing state of business, on the vagaries of unbridled competition. The proletariat, or the class of proletarians, is, in a word, the working class of the 19th century. And keep that in mind. Keep 19th. The 19th century. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's keep that there. Mm-hmm. Right? And he, okay, this is the 19th century definition of that word. So if we were doing revisions... Okay. It's advanced. If we're doing revisions, <laughs> number one stays the same, number two we can do some work with. Uh, well, you know, it's, it's more like, hey... You know, what is the proletarian today, yeah. you know, and then what is the class character of the, you know, what what are the other influences? So we now have to consider the colonial question. We have to consider the gender question. We have to consider, you know, so many other things to actually have a complete analysis of what's going on in our material conditions. Whereas this wants to rely purely on the proletarian, which, as we saw with Russia's revolution, you need the peasantry. Yes. Mm-hmm. Need them. Yep, yep. You cannot have a revolution without them. So a lot of this is predicated on a wrong proposition that you need to address. Otherwise, you're being a revisionist to what history has to say about this, not what Engels said. Yeah. You know, Engels can say whatever the fuck he wants. This is even the final version of this, you know. And so. And to drive that home, too, because we do, and we bring it up a lot because everybody thinks of it. Um, but if you look at the Russian Revolution, that's why the, the symbol was the hammer and sickle. What the hell do you think the sickle meant? The <laughs> you know, it's the peasants. Number three. Proletarians, then, have not always existed? No. There have always been poor and working classes, and the working class have mostly been poor. But there have not always been workers and poor people living under conditions as they are today. In other words, there have not always been proletarians any more than there have always been free, unbridled competitions. Oh, I like that one. And so that's like a common, yeah, that's a common myth that, you know, right-wingers will put forth even today, mm-hmm. that capitalism is unbridled competition, right? Which hasn't always occurred, and freaking uh, doesn't occur the way they like to frame it, especially uh, like a Mutual Aid by Peter Kropotkin. That's mm-hmm. an anarchist. Uh, real easy way. Like, I often recommend it to people just because it's a good work on this subject that expands evolutionary theory. Yeah. You know, into a more um, revolutionary um, thought. Isn't the process. subtitle of that like a factor mm-hmm. of evolution or something like that? Like, he was. Mm-hmm. Well, the argument is, is that rather than mutual struggle, 
being the driving force of our evolutionary change. It's when we come together, start working together, that we see that our, you know, best selves come out in species. Uh, you can, you know, name beetles, you can name Paul. sheep, you can name uh, buffalo, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Go. Thank you, David. Thank you for not hanging that one totally out to dry. Okay. All right. I, I did have to Thank save you. you there, David. Thank you for uh, saving no, my bad I, joke. I, <laughs> I, um, I, you know, I agree, and I, I think something I, I'd like to bring up is even when you go through the evolutionary perspective, um, and and this is a little more on the um, um, biologist study type thing uh, rather than you know Kropotkin is <clears throat> we're pack hunters. There's no way in hell we we came from an evolutionary competition, mutual struggle. We're pack hunters. How the fuck do you think a pack works? Yeah, you have to work together. Orcas, they all work together. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, it, sharks, they, they're pack animals even. Mm-hmm. Great whites are like some of the few that are solitary. I mean, the tigers are some of the few cats that are solitary. You know, like, uh, you know, lions are pack animal, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know who would win in a fight, a, you know, pride of lions or a tiger. Why did the Spike TV <laughs> network go under before we got that show? God exactly. dang it! You know, uh, there's, there's this Netflix series. If you like, you know, if you want to see like a bunch of horrible, horrible fights between animals, it's awful. Oh, uh, God. It's called Animal Fight Night that aired for. Oh like, my God! That sounds atrocious. <laughs> yeah, it's awful. Like you watch an elephant seal, like elephant seals kill each other for like ever, like an hour. What it's the horrible. fuck? I think I think yeah. that got the five episodes it deserved. Okay, that's bad. No, thank you. <laughs> Oh, and then, like, uh, giraffes will, like, swing their necks at each other, like, break each other's necks and, like, paralyze one another. It's horrible. Oh, I'm sad. Is <laughs> this like they pinned them and did these horrible things, or are they just, like, no, find battles in the wild. Oh, okay. This is some David Attenborough shit. Thank God. <laughs> okay. No, I got It's like Joe Rogan does. <laughs> well, tonight on uh, Animal UFC. <laughs> oh, God. Ang- and the giraffe's like, so yeah, so did I just swig my neck at him, and a big patch of my skin comes off? No fucking I way, man, new- that's so deep. I invented a new martial arts, it's called giraffe style. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, that's that's real, that's great. That's yeah. Well, uh, well, we need to start thinking about new martial arts, that's real. We need to be like Bruce Lee. Angle saved me from this bit. Number four, how did the proletariat originate? The proletariat. Bruce Lee. Damn it. No. Sorry. <laughs> the proletariat originated in the Industrial Revolution, which took place in England in the last half of the last 18th century, and which has since then been repeated in all civilized countries of the world. The, the, uh, and there's obviously a lot of uh-huh. yeah, yeah, that, yeah, conversation to yeah. be had there. They didn't realize how colonialism. Yep, would yep, turn yep, out. yep. Um, uh, this Industrial Revolution was precipitated by the discovery of the steam engine. Various spinning machines, the mechanical loom. I know that means like spinning yarn, but I'm just imagining that he just means like a whirly gig that just goes in circles, dreidel. and it's like, guys, oh. look at this oh, thing, the spinny chair. It's a I'm spinny just chair. Him like a top, <laughs> but you know? he's just really amazed by like a weather vane going in the wind. Uh, Wasn't there some scientist that like spinning on a chair like fucking crazy? Or something? I'm going to say it's. Who I'm gonna doesn't? say it's Neil deGrasse Tyson, and 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 I'm not going to look any further. <laughs> I like spinning on a chair. I, 
the mechanical loom and a whole series of other mechanical devices. These machines, which were very expensive and hence could be bought only by big capitalists, altered the whole mode of production and displaced the former workers. Because the machines turned out cheaper and better commodities than the workers could produce with their inefficient spinning wheels and hand looms, the machines delivered industry wholly into the hands of the big capitalists and rendered entirely worthless the meager property of the workers, tools, looms, etc. The result was that the capitalists soon had everything in their hands and nothing remained to the workers. This marked the introduction of the factory system into the textile industry. Once the impulse to the introduction of machinery and the factory system had been given, this system spread quickly to all other branches of industry, especially cloth and book printing, pottery, and the metal industries. So I would like to interject yeah. here. Like, uh, uh, Korea already had like a printing press by this point. Okay, so like, you know, there, and they would call them uncivilized, probably yeah. at I'd this so. point. And you probably throw them under the Asiatic mode of production, which, by the way, the Pat Socias use. So maybe, like, we should, like, start to, like... Oh, shit. Oh, yeah, they're really relying on Orthodox Marxism in order to make all of their arguments. Um, <laughs> it's really easy to dissect once you, like, read one of these basic texts like this. But, yeah. you know, you can actually see, like, the frameworks of capital coming out here. You know, they start with the textile industry because that... Um, represents like uh, almost like the Henry Ford here in America with the moving uh, mm. assembly line. You know, yeah. like y you have a revolution in industrial production that made it go faster, thus increasing their profits while decreasing the load on the working class, therefore being seen as progress, so to say. But after like we're now in Anthropocene, you know, climate change, uh, we might want to address how we view progress through the lens of industrialization. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. And also, just back on, on what the context they were working with, we've said it at the beginning and, and throughout, I think, Black Reconstruction is is slavery in the southern United States and, and the cotton industry propped up a lot of what would become capitalism. So, you know... When well, it's like the cotton gin was probably made by a yeah. slave and never paid for it. You know? Right, yeah. right. And then people didn't England buy it because they had slaves to do it and all of a sudden it went everywhere when, when the slavery was abolished. Yeah. yeah. Well, like, they, you know, the white people would just take the inventions of the people mm -hmm. they enslaved to do these mm -hmm. things and... You know, a lot of advancements are made by the workers because it's beneficial to them to make their job oh, easier. Sure. Well, the capitalists cannot produce that because they do not do the work. There, there's also like black inventors and scientists from the past that like you don't even realize are black because they don't really mention it in the education, and you start going through you're like, oh, they were black. Yeah. <laughs> Why didn't I ever know this? Like, it's the white people take take the credit and when they can't they they morph the person they morph their politics they morph who they are in some way that it's acceptable that's that's pretty well how it's always gone well is, isn't there like a key and peel sketch about how the <laughs> colonel sanders stole the like oh, the verbs the and spices <laughs> yeah. i haven't seen that one but i i can imagine it and i imagine it very well it's either like Key and Peel or maybe it's like Keenan Thompson, but it's pretty funny. Labor was more and more divided among the individual workers so that the worker who previously had done a complete piece of work now only did a part of that piece. This division of labor made it possible to produce things faster and cheaper. 
It reduced the activity of the individual worker to simple, endlessly repeated mechanical motions which could be performed not only as well but much better by a machine. In this way, all these industries fell one after another under the dominance of steam, machinery, and the factory system, just as spinning and weaving had already done. But at the same time, they also fell into the hands of big capitalists, and their workers were deprived of whatever independence remained to them. Gradually, not only genuine manufacture, but also handicrafts came within the province of the factory system, as big capitalists increasingly displaced the small master craftsmen by setting up huge workshops, which saved many expenses and permitted an elaborate division of labor. This is how it has come about that in the civilized countries at the present time, nearly all kinds of labor are performed in factories, and in nearly all branches of work, handicrafts and manufacture have been superseded. This process has, to an even greater degree, ruined the old middle class, especially the small handicraftsmen. It has entirely transformed the conditions of the workers, and two new classes have been created which are gradually swallowing up all the others. These are, one, the class of big capitalists who in all civilized countries are already in almost exclusive possession of all the means of subsistence and the instruments, machines, factories, and materials necessary for the production of the means of subsistence. This is the bourgeois class, or the bourgeoisie. Two, the class of the wholly propertyless who are obliged to sell their labor to the bourgeoisie in order to get, in exchange, the means of subsistence for their support. This is called the class of proletarians, or the proletariat. Moving on to number five. No. Oh, I, I did want to touch Please. on too because we've talked about how like middle class is a bullshit term, and there's many subclasses that are important or, or exterior classes. There's a clear divide of you know owners and non-owners, right? Um, but there was a point where there was a middle class because there was an aristocracy, and then there was you know workers and peasants and things, and then there was you know with what. We'd think of now as petty bourgeois, but at the time were were the you know like I said handicraftsmen and stuff, and that's gone. So it's not like middle class is never existed. It's that it doesn't exist since the emergence of capitalism. And anyone that harkens back to it, the idea that properly gets in your head is petty bourgeois, and that's just a capitalist. Yep. Right. Like I mean, now when you're looking at craftspeople, like an indigenous person selling their own labor, yeah, you know, at handmade crafts, that's not a petite bourgeois. Yeah. That's a person who's selling their labor in the system. You know, like, they might own their own business, but it's like, as much as you sitting on the side of the corner selling your tomatoes if you're a, you know, peasant farmer. Right, that's that's not like someone doing your taxes or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a little different. Well, and and even then, like, if somebody's doing your taxes, it's like, well, okay, are 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 they the owner of the business or like when we go into H and R? How much do you think those people are getting robbed? Okay, maybe not H and R block. I'm talking like yeah, you know. <laughs> I was just randomly saying. Something. Well, no, but like that's the thing is that you need to have a mm-hmm. higher level of nuance now yeah. because the the division. You know, you have a professional managerial class, but that's more becomes a class trader even. Mm-hmm. You know, like even the managers aren't really owners. The managers are far from the owners nowadays. You know, uh, or or like uh, with like McDonald's, you know, they offload ownership onto a franchisee, which it's like, and they're a petite bourgeois, even though they technically own 
that yeah. restaurant because McDonald's is the actual owner mm-hmm. and they own the land and they lease it out to them. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's you know a, a, a you know, devious scheme that gives a perception of uh, bourgeois, um, you know, like being welcomed into the bourgeois when in reality. You're just playing along in this little fantasy game they set up for us, it's, you know. Meanwhile, they conglomerate all the wealth. It's all every the trappings. While the fucking it's all the trappings of being bourgeois with, but it's it's just it's a house of cards for them because they are they are I would say among the mm-hmm. first class that gets hit when all when you have these financial recessions and stuff like that. Those kind of middlemen that have those kind of made up in between jobs that is always one of the first things that gets hit during those kind of things because it's like. No, there's no reason for you. You're a middleman that we no longer need you. Goodbye. <laughs> well, it's like Papa John's is complaining on uh, OAN that he lost a home. Oh, God. In a hurricane. Oh, my God. It's like, hmm. <laughs> oh, my God. This guy got kicked out of his company, and now he's like trying to be this working class guy to, well, and, and to a lot of, you know, the patriotic types. You know, that is a working class guy. Oh, he made his own business. Look at that. Look at what he did all by himself, you know, with the exploited labor of all of his, you know, many workers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think the book will get into a lot of this. For sure. Later, so. uh, under what conditions does this sale of the labor of proletarians to the bourgeoisie take place? Labor is a commodity, like any other, and its price is therefore determined by exactly the same laws that apply to other commodities. In a regime of big industry or of free competition, as we shall see, the two come to the same thing. The price of a commodity is, on average, always equal to its cost of production. Hence, the price of labor is always equal to the cost of production of labor. But the cost of production of labor consists of precisely the quantity of means of subsistence necessary to enable the worker to continue working, and to prevent the working class from dying out. The worker will therefore get no more for his labor than is necessary for his purpose. The price of labor, or the wage, will, in other words, be the lowest, the minimum, required for the maintenance of life. However, since business is sometimes better and sometimes worse, it follows that the worker sometimes gets more and gets less for his commodities. But again, just as the industrialist, on the average of good times and bad, gets no more and no less for his commodities than what they cost... Similarly, on the average, the worker gets no more and no less than his minimum. This economic law of wages operates more the more strictly the greater the degree to which the big industry has taken possession of all the branches of production. Getting into vertical integration. Thank you, Engels. Oh, <laughs> uh, again, the foundations of capital. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Oh, we're, we're, why do they write all those books? Oh, this is why. Yep. Yeah. This is this is the 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 uh, seeds being planted. Yep. Uh, what working classes were there before the Industrial Revolution? The working classes have always, according to the different stages of development of society, lived in different circumstances and had different relations to the owning and ruling classes. In antiquity, the workers were slaves of the owners, just as they still are in many backward countries and even in the southern part of the United States. Gotta love that dig. Thank you, Engels. Uh, In the Middle Ages, they were the serfs of the land-owning nobility, as they still are in Hungary, Poland, and Russia. In the Middle Ages, and indeed right up into the Industrial Revolution, there were also journeymen in the cities who worked in the service of petty bourgeois masters. 
Gradually, as manufacture developed, these journeymen became manufacturing workers who were even then employed by large capitalists. And so a big thing um, for settlers reading this is acknowledging that uh, this isn't a universally applicable analysis of how class developed all over the world. This is how class developed in England. (laughs) (laughs) That's what they're an expert on. Um, You know, even like Walter Rodney won't touch on how class developed in indigenous places because he recognizes he's not an expert in that. You know, so like, uh, I don't expect Marx or Engels to touch on that as 19th century white men, you know? (laughs) But like, uh, you know, you don't really have this... not at least not in every society i should say you know there's many societies without this slave dynamic in antiquity so it's like you know think think about how this applies i know we keep saying it but yeah (laughs) please for the love of god stop worshiping books exactly exactly yeah there's another book there's there's a whole work about not there's a yeah i was gonna say there's a book on on book worship right yeah yeah Uh, In what way do proletarians differ from slaves? The slave is sold once and for all. The proletarian must sell himself daily and hourly. The individual slave, property of one master, is assured in existence, however miserable it may be, because of the master's interest. The individual proletarian, property, as it were, of the entire bourgeois class, which buys his labor only when someone has need of it, has no secure existence. This existence is assured only to the class as a whole. The slave is outside competition. The proletarian is in it and experiences all its vagaries. The slave counts as a thing, not as a member of society. Thus, the slave can have a better existence than the proletarian, while the proletarian belongs to a higher stage of social development and himself stands on a higher social level than the slave. The slave frees himself when of all relations all the relations of private property, he abolishes only the relation of slavery and thereby becomes a proletarian. The proletarian can free himself only by abolishing private property in general. I don't like that. No, it's very problematic to say that the proletarian (laughs) has it harder than the slave. I don't enjoy that Because the slave is treated as an object, therefore it's better. Yeah, that's... Like, what a white man's burden. Yeah, that... That's that paragraph. That whole is. one can just get cut. We can just cut that. Uh, yeah. Uh, nah. No. <laughs> Not very. No. 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 Either. Oh no. We have to say it. We have to say it for the show. I'm saying just we're doing sure. I, as as I'm giving Angles his notes. I'm saying Angles section seven is not needed. Um. Expunge. Sure. I have it. a feeling section eight's about to not be needed. I will, but go ahead. I will. There, there's a there's a half a sentence that's fine. There, it's the proletarian belongs to a higher stage of social development and on himself a higher social level than the slave because that's how class is constructed. That's it, and that's part of a shit. Well, sentence. And then like the slave frees himself, you know. But then that well, yeah. kind of misses the point of that. Just he only frees himself you, into being proletarian, which is pretty key yeah. there. And, and, yeah, yeah, that's like the same thing as like uh, Vindalorier saying, "Oh, the Indian Act was pretty good, you know. It brought us from you know destitution to mere poverty, <laughs> right? You know, like, ah, that's progress. Yep. <laughs> you know, pro- <laughs> right. Yeah. 
it also makes a, a converse of of why petty bourgeois are so often like a vanguard of reaction too, um, because their difference is they can morph into proletarian, but it's a fall down in class rather than a promotion up in class. Right. So like a freaking. You know, angles. Mm-hmm. You know, the worst thing to him is like, oh god, I might actually. I might actually have to be the thing right. I'm talking about. He's right. like, oh, slavery will never happen to me. Yeah, you know? <laughs> white. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck this dude. All right. Anyway, sorry. I love about to uh, about to learn how being a proletarian is somehow worse than being a serf. Here we go. Well, and so I would say surf still exists sort of today, but it needs to be understood better than how this understands it in the terms of medieval <laughs> feudalism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The serf possesses and uses an instrument of production, a piece of land in exchange for which he gives up a part of his product or part of his service, the services of his labor. The proletariat works with the instruments of production of another for the account of this other in exchange for a part of the product. The serf gives up the proletarian receives. The serf has an assured existence. The proletarian has not. The serf is outside competition. The proletarian is in it. The serf liberates himself in one of three ways. Either he runs away to the city and then becomes a handicraftsman, or instead produce, uh, instead of products and services, he gives money to his lord and thereby becomes a free tenant. Or he overthrows his feudal lord and himself becomes a property owner. In short, by one route or another, he gets into the owning class and enters into the competition. The proletarian liberates himself by abolishing competition, private property, and all the class differences. But I'm just going to say, imagine saying that somebody renting nowadays is a part of the owning. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like that. It's like, no. no. I mean, your landlord barely owns exactly. it. Exactly. You know I mean? You're like two steps <laughs> like, removed shit. from ownership at best. Like, fuck. This is just, like, they did not expect things to get as bad as it did. Mm -hmm. They were like, yeah, we're going to have a revolution before that. (laughs) In what way do proletarians differ from handicraftsmen? In contrast to the proletarian, the so-called handicraftsman, as he still existed almost everywhere in the past 18th century, and still exists here and there at present, is a proletarian at most temporarily. His goal is to acquire capital himself, wherewith to exploit other workers. He can often achieve this goal where guilds still exist or where the freedom from guild restrictions has not yet led to the introduction of factory-style methods into the crafts, nor yet to fierce competition. But as soon as the factory system has been introduced into the crafts and competition flourishes fully, this perspective dwindles away and the handicraftsman becomes more and more a proletarian. The handicraftsman therefore frees himself by becoming either bourgeois or entering the middle class in general, or becoming a proletarian because of competition, as is now more often the case, in which case he can free himself by joining the proletarian movement, i.e. the more or less communist movement. And and we did just discuss this where we were talking about that that middle class and it's kind of become from like the guild workers and it kind of became the petty bourgeois. But you can see here even Engels differentiating handicraftsmen from even that petty bourgeois, right? Like you know somebody that's that's selling, you know, their their farm stuff out of out of their yard or or you know doing. Um, small crafts is it's very different independent artists things like that is very different from a petty bourgeois tyrant from a guild um owner well, he says specifically this perspective dwindles away and the candy craftsman becomes more and more exactly at this point it's dwindled so far away that most handy craftsmen if they do exist 
you know, which you, I think a lot of like the Etsy people, like they get super exploited by Etsy mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. you know, like they, they might be selling their own, you know, technically a petite bourgeois, but it's like, you're really stretching that yeah. term. Yeah. Like I, there, there's this one dude I, I know on Twitter that sells seeds, like hemp seeds, you know, and it's like. I, I wouldn't call that guy a freaking petit bourgeois. Like, he's selling, wheat, like, you know, freaking seeds. Yeah, yeah That's people... barely freaking... I don't know. People that lean on that understanding, it's it's a mistake because you can either have, like we said, the cut and dry understanding is, you know, do you have people that work for you that you pay or do you not? Are you are you owning class or are you not? And there's the oversimplified. Or you can go broader and look at all this context and it's very obvious that that's different from like, you know, a used car salesman or some shit. Exactly. Not the salespeople, but like the, the lot owners. Yes. Right. If you're, not as, if you're not aspiring to like actually like franchise out mm-hmm. you know I, I, I think you're in the clear it's exactly I, I think, <laughs> I, <laughs> like as long as you don't have other workers it's just you and you're not mm-hmm. like yeah I'm going to open up a second location I'm going to get a couple like teenagers to work over here. you know I think you're in the good if, if you're like actually I'm going to become a worker and I'm going to force a union on my workers <laughs> well, I don't know what to talk about there <laughs> you know <laughs> Marks did not prepare me for that. You know? <laughs> what what are we going to do there? I don't know. Like that is the least of my worries. If owners are forcing unions on the workers and yeah. becoming a worker themselves, yeah. In what way? Number ten. In what way do proletarians differ from manufacturing workers? The manufacturing worker of the 16th to 18th centuries still had, with but few exception, an instrument of production in his own possession. His loom, the family spinning wheel, a little plot of land which he cultivated in his spare time. The proletarian. Okay, can we just talk about the family spinning oh, yeah. wheel? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, I want grandma's spinning wheel. I, if I get that in the wheel, I'm I, good. You know, you you said the spinning chair or the spinning thing earlier, and now I'm imagining a whole family just sitting on the wheel and just whirling <laughs> around together like a merry-go-round. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Spinning sign. You're the one who said that, by the way. You mentioned the spinning scientist. No, yes. so. no, I did. I did, but that was off Nathan saying something about a spinning chair. Or no, a spinning, I said spinning. I, know, spinning I said spinning machine, and you went to spinning chair, and That's then you it. went to a scientist, and now we're on. Now we're on merry-go-rounds this, this, on the spinning. This bit wheels. has evolved. Right. So this is uh, David this is, is going like to have less weed levels. before the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to say anything, but... (laughs) The manufacturing worker almost always lives in the countryside in a more or less patriarchal relation to his landlord or employer. The proletarian lives for the most part in the city, and his relation to his employer is purely a cash relation. The manufacturing worker is torn out of his patriarchal relation by big industry, loses whatever property he still has, and in this way becomes a proletarian. What were the immediate, number 11, what were the immediate consequences of the Industrial Revolution and of the division of society into bourgeois and proletariat? Long section coming up, gang, so feel free to cut me off whenever you need to. Uh, 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 well, I'll cut you there off immediately. There we go. So what were the immediate consequences? Peter Kropotkin literally observed the fucking icebergs receding as soon as it started. So we saw climate change begin. So now we know. We know that the immediate change was that. 
We do know that. It's fucked up how long we've known. Greenhouse? Look up when we discovered the greenhouse effect. Look that up. Look that up. It's disgustingly long ago. And we're motherfucking killing the planet. I mean, for billions of years, rain was drinkable. Now it's not. We fucked up. We fucked up, gang. That is uh, what you could call 100% correct. Uh, also, I was trying to look up when they uh, when they looked up the greenhouse effect, and I can't find it. So I'm going to, I'm going with the original. Just look up the greenhouse uh, effect in Wikipedia. And then I was I was gonna say it's John Tyndall is the guy who did it. I know that, and I know anytime you see him, he's in like black and white uh, pictures. Yeah, it's like like late 1800s. Oh God! Like yeah, pro- probably around the time that this this was. It was written. proposed yeah. by Joseph <laughs> Fourier in 1824. Oh God. Oh, early 1800s. Sorry. Sorry, I was oh, a little late. Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not great, gang. Uh, <laughs> yeah, horrible facts with Shungmani, too, that I've known since 16. <laughs> like, why am I depressed? No. I've known too much for too long. So, moving on to Engel's definition of the immediate consequences of the Industrial Revolution and of the division of society into bourgeois and proletariat. First... The lower and lower prices of industrial products brought about by machine labor totally destroyed in all countries of the world the old system of manufacture or industry based upon hand labor. In this way, all semi-barbarian countries, oh dear, uh, which had hitherto been more or less strangers to historical development, like, oh um, dear, and whose industry we can all we can all we can all acknowledge that this is very much angles. Uh, who is who's a white guy from Germany? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> They're not very known to be good on the race nope, questions. Nope, nope, nope. Uh, so this is uh, really just white supremacism bleeding through, uh, and you should really question, you know, some of these earlier takes because calling anybody semi-barbarian kind of misses, like. Uh, you know, Aztecs population centers being larger than Paris and England at the same time and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, aqueducts, yeah. uh, bunch of different things like that. Aqueducts without lead pipes, mind you, so they didn't become violent like the Romans. Um, well, maybe they had their own issues, but, uh, you know, it wasn't like gladiator battles all the yeah. time. Like, if you ever watch Apocalypto... No, they weren't kicking around people's heads. You're t- are you That's telling me that Mel Gibson man. made a historically inaccurate movie about an indigenous people? <laughs> what? What Mel Gibson being a white that Mel Gibson? Unbelievable. Has Mel Gibson made a single historically accurate movie? Because I feel like his track record is very bad. No, The Patriot is so I- accurate. Wait, it is, is, it is what it's called. Yeah, it's got the Patriot. But he's got like, uh, Braveheart. I feel like the Patriot got... even is like, it tries to like invent British war crimes. Like, I'm, the, mm-hmm. I'm not going to stand the British, but what? like he tries to like just invent war crimes that happen just for like, sh- I guess I've never oh, it's looked which, bad. Into it. Which is pretty like, amazing because if you need to find British war crimes, they're there. He just picked <laughs> not those. Uh, <laughs> well, it's the same thing. Where, like he, he, like in Braveheart, like he adds in battles that like never existed. Oh. Yeah, kilts weren't even invented when Braveheart happened. For God's sakes, they came like five hundred years later <laughs> Wait, or something what? like that. Yeah, uh... yeah, kilts are not historically accurate to Braveheart. Mm-hmm. I, I, I know. 
Dumb facts you know. that Nathan knows because he's on the internet too much. Um, <laughs> all right. So moving on to the rest of this horrible, awful sentence. Um, back to in this way, all the summer barbarian countries, which had hitherto been more or less strangers to historical development and whose industry had been based on manufacture, were violently forced out of their isolation. Ooh, get a nice hermit kingdom dig on them. Make it, make it, make it sting, Engels. Uh, they bought the cheaper commodities of the English and allowed their own manufacturing workers to be ruined. That's very disingenuous. Oh, 100%. Very disingenuous. Absolutely. Allowed. Yeah. That's, it gets worse. We, oh, haven't, no. uh, we haven't gotten to the example that's on its way. Cut. Is what he calls it. Countries which had oh, no yeah. no progress yeah. for thousands of years. For example, India. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say that India has had progress for thousands of years, but that's fine. It gets no, worse. We're never, thoroughly revolutionized. Never, it gets worse. And even China is Taj Mahal. Even China is now on the way to a revolution. Mm-hmm. He's talking about the opium wars, by the way. Yeah. Oh, uh-huh. good. Like, when they say revolution, they're just talking about social progress, quote-unquote, and their version of social progress is merely um, not having to... Yeah, this is... I mean, you you really got to start questioning what what their motives are. It's like, do they just not want to work, or what's... Yeah, this is this is not know. revolution in the uh, the break your chains uh, sense. It's revolution in the industrial revolution sense, and it's not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There you go. Mm-hmm. All right, it, we have come to the point where a new machine invented in England deprives millions of Chinese workers of their livelihood within a year's time. In this way, big industry has brought all the people of Earth into contact with each other. Oh, globalism's here. Uh Oh, no, don't oh, say no. that. Oh, no, come on, you have to. You have to say it. Uh, has merged all local markets into one world market, has spread civilization and progress everywhere, and has thus ensured that whatever happened in civilized countries will have repercussions in all other countries. And Nathan, now we're in 2022. I was sitting on saying that, that a machine in England deprives Chinese workers of their livelihoods is is the one true sentence of that first paragraph, but it doesn't mean what angles mean. But instead, you put an idea in my head. I figured out why these Potsies are such orthodox Marxists, because you can use sentences like that when you made the globalism joke, and that's probably how they actually do it, right? Yeah. That's, no, that's, that's, that's your Marxist to, to fascist pipeline. And, well, and this is... Oh, it's not ahead. a wrong idea. It's just misplacing the terms. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, when when you hear globalism rather than globalization, right? Globalization is, and even globalization is an oversimplified term for uh, imperialism, right? I mean, that's right, exactly. that's that's really what it is. But when you hear globalism, they create that term because that way the idea is not capital being exported and exploiting the global south it's that the whole globe is coming together and diversity is the problem because it's a degeneracy and that's how this becomes uh, so swiftly from even you know it, it's always been a racist dog whistle and that immediately becomes an anti-semitic dog whistle well okay so like the other day i i said oh well when you have immigrants move into a settler colony you know mm-hmm. of any kind you know it doesn't matter and whenever an immigrant comes to a settler colony, it legitimizes the project and therefore upholds white supremacy. That's just the way it works. It's the whole point of it. 
you know. So when, like, talking about indigenous genocide that's real, you know, now people will conflate that with white people saying, oh, uh, that's actually, you're replacing us. Yeah. The immigrants are replacing us. And it's like, no, I don't think the immigrants are necessarily trying to replace us. I think they're trying to flee the violence brought to them by the Imperial Corps in other parts of the world, you know? Yeah. They're as much victims as me, but they came to my homelands. That's the only difference, you know? Yeah, I mean, let's let's be very clear. There's two ideas here, right? There's the one that diversity is bad, and that's the obvious racist, bigoted one. And there's one that the, the diversity is exceptionally good. And while I would much rather oppose, like, the ethno-nationalists and the racism and all that shit, um, it's kind of a, a fucked-up racist thought to say diversity is inherently good because then that legitimizes, like, settler colonies and the slave trades and the repercussions left behind as, you know, the the ideal world. And it's like, well, how it's did we get progress. there? We were progress. Right. We were making our way to a better world. Right. We were just, we were just building diversity. Yeah, we were just building diversity and it's, that's diversity really right know, if you think about it right when, when realistically <laughs> diversity is 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 a net neutral it paints a historical picture and there's going to be diversity in every society even not the settler Hopefully. colonies there, and there should be diversity yes. in every yes society. there should um and and more uh more visible and more um you know I, I don't know how to, to say it other than visible, more dynamic diversity is just a, a context of a history of settler colonialism. And that's all. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. Like, it's just materialism. Like, mm-hmm. you don't have to ascribe any feelings to it besides that's how it happened. Right. But wow. liberalism gives you an idea that it's either a good or a bad thing. And then we tell our exactly. child's tale Those that it's good. To, yeah. They're, they're both meaningless in there. And, and it's just a matter of how explicit the white supremacy in it is. Are you promoting settler colonialism or are you just outright violent towards the victims of it? Ah, it follows that if the workers in England or France now liberate themselves, this must set off revolution in all other countries. Revolution which sooner or later must accomplish the liberation of their respective working classes. Man, I wish it worked that way. Um, Second, wherever big (laughs) industries displaced manufacture, the bourgeoisie developed in their wealth and power to the utmost and made itself the first class of the country. The result was that wherever this happened, the bourgeoisie took political power into its own hands and displaced the hitherto ruling classes, the aristocracy, the guildmasters, and their representatives, the absolute monarchy. The bourgeoisie annihilated the power of the aristocracy, the nobility, by abolishing the entailment of estates. In other words, by making landed property subject to purchase and sale, and by doing away with special privileges of the nobility. It destroyed the power of the guildmasters by abolishing guilds and handicraft privileges. In their place, it put competition. That is, a state of society in which everyone has the right to enter into any branch of industry, the only obstacle being a lack of the necessary capital. The introduction of free competition and thus public declaration that from now on the members of society are unequal only to the extent that their capitals are unequal, that capital is the decisive power, and that therefore the capitalists, the bourgeoisie, have become the first class in society. Free competition is necessary for the establishment of big industry because it is the only condition of society in which big industry can make its way. Having destroyed the social power of the nobility and the guildmasters, the bourgeoisie also destroyed their political power. 
Having raised itself to the actual position of a first class in society, it proclaims itself to also be the dominant political class. This it does through the introduction of the representative system which rests on bourgeois equality before the law and the recognition of free competition, and in European countries takes the form of constitutional monarchy. In these constitutional monarchies, only those who possess a certain capital are voters, that is to say, only members of the bourgeoisie. These bourgeois voters choose the deputies, and these bourgeois deputies, by using their right to refuse to vote taxes, choose a bourgeois government. Third, everywhere having the proletariat develops in the same in step with the bourgeoisie. Third, everywhere the proletariat develops in step with the bourgeoisie. There we go. In proportion, as the bourgeoisie grows in wealth, the proletariat grows in number. For since this since the proletarian can be employed only by capital, and since capital extends only through employing labor, it follows that the growth of the proletariat proceeds at precisely the same pace as the growth of capital. Simultaneously, this process draws members of the bourgeoisie and proletarians together into the great cities where industry can be carried on most profitably, and by thus throwing great masses in one spot, it gives to the proportions a proletarians a consciousness of their own strength. Moreover, the further this process advances, the more new labor-saving machines are invented, the greater is the pressure exercised by big industry on wages, which, as we have seen, sink to their minimum and therewith render the condition of the proletariat increasingly unbearable. The growing dissatisfaction of the proletariat thus joins with its rising power to prepare a proletarian social revolution. And and you can see where, you know, the... The process of um, oh, I've suddenly lost my entire term. Mode of production, where the mode of production and and the process of that growing, uh, Engels believed would inherently lead to revolution because the workers would just be clumped closer and closer and closer together. And you know, in the twentieth century, that happened. But we've we've got to adapt this for our conditions, and people increasingly are separate because of the stress capital puts on people and, and, and multiple jobs and, and things like that. And so we have to be conscious and, and actively build communities. Wrong. Like, he's yeah. not necessarily – because ne- the next year would be some pretty right. important – you know, like it's like, oh, yeah, he was analyzing stuff of his time correctly. He just can't predict imperialism, you know. Right. Yeah. It, like, it's, just, it, it's its own beast. Like, right. Even, and like, that's, and that's important. discussion today. That's important. Oh, oh no, no, I was gonna, I was gonna just build on what you were saying in in this because that's important. You can't analyze, you know, like I'm not gonna be thrown into a factory with you know people stuck in Iran starving from sanctions, right? So I'm not gonna come together naturally like this. So we have to actively educate ourselves, actively build our local communities, actively build our movements in a way that this didn't lend to. But again, this was foundational, and he was observing Europe in the middle of the 19th century. And a lot of this uh, still applies, but not as mechanically or explicitly as, for example, this section. Well, right, and that's like why left unity is always so like you know emphasized on or whatever. But it's like it's hard to have unity if you... Mm-hmm. You know, our different political tendencies and stuff like that. So it's more about having unity as, you know, workers yeah. and stuff like that rather than uniting on politics, which is like where the patriotic socialists are coming from, right? But th- they're misidentifying, you know, MAGA people as the working class because of essentially propaganda that's 
well, oh, yeah, the white working class is the silent majority, you know? Well, I mean, it also, you know, racism comes from this idea that, like, I could fall down into the class, the lower races. I'm keeping myself above it by being the, the greater privileged race and I got to protect, you know, and, and, and you've got the same thing intra-class and race that, you know, Engels is playing on here, right? The, the Marxists are not trade unionists, right? I mean, we we support unions for sure but we're not trade unionists um because you have to unite with the unemployed or you're not working together as a class of proletarians you have to uh unite with the people of the other work so you know you can see these unemployed people that could replace you in your job as an enemy or you can reach out to them but it's not the unemployed people that have to reach out it's the employed people right it's not the non-white people that have to be more understanding that they're in a bigger group with white people it's the white people that have to understand that they're a lot safer from some of these colonial mechanisms and you know fight against that in the same way the workers would have to fight for the unemployed along with the unemployed as one struggle one struggle doesn't mean you ignore the differences or the other struggles to groups of people within it it means that every battle lost by any group of people within it brings you all down yeah so every victory brings you all up Mm mm-hmm you know, mm-hmm. it's not mutual. They're not mutually exclusive no. gains or losses. They're interconnected because that's how fucking materialism <laughs> works. Mm-hmm. One class, one struggle. One love. And with that, we're going to end the episode for this week because I was a goddamn fool when I said we were going to get through this in one episode. We're half. We got halfway half through halfway it. goddamn through it. And it's it, and we're. <laughs> I mean, we could just do an extra. No, long one. no, <laughs> no, no. Uh, that being said, we've been doing long ones lately. Y'all been getting your money's worth. And by money's worth, I mean absolutely nothing. <laughs> unless, unless you would like to donate uh, any money over to Shugmani2 for his uh, their effort in this collaboration. Uh, Shugmani2, plugs. Oh, oh uh, I'm going first this time. Okay, uh, Rec Bay, uh, always donate to them first and foremost. Uh, you're giving me a dollar, give them a dollar first, preferably. Um, you know, uh, let's see, uh, I have my own GoFundMe for Woju, which just means garden or farm in Lakota. <laughs> it's a garden. <laughs> uh, then I have the Patreon, which, uh, uh I'm revamping, uh, my PC is good, is currently in the process of being fixed. And so, uh, we're going to be promising 12 episodes on the main feed. A year, and then I'm going to be starting uh, another project uh, that's going to be focused on like Michigan history and organizing, uh, where ideally I'll talk to you know settlers who don't have they're not Marxists, but they're willing to put in the hard work, you know, or they support land back, and you know they don't need to be the super politically developed Marxists to understand our position, and oftentimes. It seems that being too developed of a Marxist is a hindrance than it helps understanding decolonization sometimes. And it might be because of an over-reliance on orthodox interpretations, like we're displaying with this mini-madness. Other than that, um, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I do recommend, since we are, you know, reading the Red Nations book, you go support them. Uh, you know, I might not be organizing with them anymore, but they're still doing good work and worth supporting. Um, uh, other than that, am I forgetting anything? I don't, I don't think, think so. so. Uh, did you, did you say your Patreon 
Uh, I, I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, oh, maybe I didn't. Oh, so uh, so besides those twelve episodes, I'm going to do twelve episodes on the Michigan, twelve episodes on the Maine, and then on the Patreon, it's just going to be as consistent uploading as I can. Hopefully, like once a week uh, of an Ancient Aliens episode or some shit. Um, and you know, you're going to get. I'm going to break down why that show's racist more, basically, uh, which is going to be fun. If you want a preview of that, go to Shigmanitu's Twitter and uh, check that out because it's, I've seen previews of it on your Twitter and it looks uh, mind melting. It, it looks mind melting. Oh, yeah. Well, all I did was start watching the first episode after the special and then I'm, I, I need to learn German better. <laughs> I'm like, why do I have to read German? This is very that's the sus. rabbit hole. That's the you rabbit know? hole. This is going down, folks. I, German is getting involved. I I was gonna say, were you talking about like why is this racist? And your first thing is like, I gotta learn to read German. I feel like there's a pretty big dot we can connect there. Hmm. Why is this guy from Argentina? You know? <laughs> why is this man an Argentinian but has a German name? Oh, yes, I'm a native of Argentina. The, the von Wulschwitzes have been here for years. Yeah, at least since the 1940s. <laughs> uh, well, on the Mark's Madness side of this collaboration, there are a number of different ways you can reach out to us. We are available uh, through email. Our email address is marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. We are also able to be reached on Twitter. Uh, Twitter, we are at marksmadnesspod on Twitter. Uh, if you would like to get to us uh, on a more day-to-day basis or in a forum uh, with other people around, you can do that as well. We have a Discord, and the link to that is in our Twitter bio. Uh, if you don't use Twitter, you can always email us for the link, and we'll send it to you that way. Uh, but other than that, uh, David, I feel like it is time for a collaboration. And by collaboration, I do mean disclaimer. I was going to say. <laughs> the disclaimer is Angles is really white. This is a really old text. <laughs> um, anyway, so for the Mark's Madness side of this, uh, we uh, started by reading Capital, um, written almost as long ago as this, so, you know, totally sus. Um but obviously there's there's problems. Uh, but uh, we read it because, you know, Nathan came up to me and was like, hey, you know, you read theory, you read history with more than one person. You've read this before, so you'll be someone I can read it with. Can we read this together? And then we thought, okay, well, two people's a pretty small crowd, though. So we recorded it. And then when we got enough episodes, we thought, well, we can do this. We can do a podcast. Why not? Let's share it with other people. It'll help. And lo and behold, hundreds of you are here every week. And we are excited about that as always and we've always hoped from the beginning our vision was that hopefully you're out in your party your cadre uh your organizing group and you have your political education group your reading group reading this along with us and we can be another voice in the crowd another source of context another source of input things like that um and then hopefully you know if the reading group or the political education group is doing something shorter or something more applicable to something they're focused on. Um, we can be the reading group for you if you're reading it. And uh, so we can give you those extra benefits of the reading group, the context, uh, the other perspectives. And then let's say that's Jokes not to light the mood. <laughs> <laughs> Jokes. Jokes. Uh, and then uh, 
Uh, let's say that's not happening and we're either an enhanced ebook, uh, like we are at the Red Nation, uh, or it's a work we summarize more, whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you. Because we want these works out there guiding your actions. Uh, when these works turn into revolutionary action, that's a phenomenon called praxis. Uh, praxis, of course, can't exist without theory, and theory is completely useless without the praxis. They go hand in hand. They are tied at the hip. Amen. As always, that being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. Hallelujah. I do. I do at the end. I have no idea why I started doing that. It just happened, and now it's an unconscious tick. (laughs) Got got that super church in you. You just got to get get it out. out. Uh, that being said, uh, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books in collaboration with Shugmani 2 from Bands of Turtle Island. We will talk to you all next week. Bye.